This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is April 7th, 2021. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Michael Kluger. I joined Hofstra Radio just around the end of 79. I was at the station till 83 when I graduated and actually continued on with the station a bit longer than that as a volunteer, just helping out with various things. So during your time uh, as an undergraduate, which uh, shows did you work on at Hofstra Radio? Well, I was a little unusual at Hofstra in the, at the radio station and that so many people came into the station wanting to be a DJ, wanting to get on the air, but that was never really my area of interest. I was always a techie geek in junior high school and high school audiovisual work. So when I came in, I knew that I was looking at a career in broadcast engineering. And because of that, I really didn't get involved in any of the on-air work and never hosted or went on air with any shows. Instead, I was the guy that could always be found behind the board, the guy who had to know what every single knob, dial, button, meter on every piece of equipment did. So I made it through through all my years at Hofstra Radio without really ever going on the air. Okay. Um, do you, did you have any titles or management positions while you're at the radio station? Uh, Yes, I did. I started off as a studio engineer, and then I got into doing remotes, a lot of the sports remotes, and I eventually became remote operations chief and then executive engineer. So the, the, the first position that you mentioned, the studio engineer, what was what was that position like? What was that? That was mainly doing the on-air console work for the live broadcasts, occasionally some pre-recorded work, basically just working in the control room, which in those days was the one working control room that we had down in the basement of the Little Theater way back when the callers were actually WVHC rather than WRHU. So so you would uh, operate the board and there would be an announcer or a group of announcers that would, would be live on the air? Yes, usually either one announcer or when it was a music program, generally a program host plus a staff announcer. Okay. So this is a two-part question, but we'll, we'll, we'll start with this part. The, the first part is, uh, or the one part of it is, what brought you to the radio station. But the the thing I'd like to start with is if you could to describe not only where the radio station was when you first went there, but what it looked like, maybe people that you met or, or, you know, if you could paint a radio picture of uh, what things were like when you first walked into Hofstra radio. Well, my first experience with Hofstra Radio was trying to find the very, very well-hidden station office, which in those days was located in 251 Memorial Hall, which for those who weren't there back in the day was an office well off the beaten path at the top of what I would refer to as a hidden staircase within the building. And I had looked up in the catalog in Hofstra, the radio station, found they were in 251 
one memorial hall and then spent several days literally hunting through every nook and cranny in memorial hall unsuccessfully trying to find the station and when i finally found this hidden staircase at the top of the stairs was the holy grail the wvhc office and i told them that i wanted to join the station and become an engineer they gave me some paperwork to fill out and told me someone would be in touch not long after that i was contacted and told to show up at a certain date and time at the basement of the little theater which was where the station was located back in those days the station had just one working control room and studio Back then, the station broadcast hours were pretty limited. We were uh, we didn't go on the air until 2 p.m. on weekdays, 10 a.m. on weekends, and on all seven days, we signed off at 2 a.m. And the, one of the reasons for the limited hours was with only one working control room and studio, the facilities had to be shared between four functions. They had to be used for on air. They had to be used for all of the pre productions they had to be used for doing the training of station members and they were also used by the communication department for the credit bearing hands-on radio courses so the studios were shared quite a bit between those functions and tended to be pretty busy it wasn't unheard of for people to be booking studio time at 2 or 3 a.m for production work after the station went off the air Walking into the station, I still remember over 40 years ago, the very first time that I walked into the basement of Little Theater, you walked in the door and you turned to your left and there was this long wood grain corridor that led down to the control room and the studio. And the one thing that caught my attention immediately on one side of the car, the, the wall was totally covered in picture frames, but there were no pictures in those picture frames. Let me explain a bit. This was back in the days before radio was deregulated. And back then, any time a station, either radio or television, was going to be on the air, you were required to have an FCC-licensed engineer on the premises, either at the broadcast origination point or at the transmitter. And you could not be on the air without someone actually there with an FCC license. So in all of those picture frames were the FCC licenses from all of the student engineers. And that immediately caught my attention because by coincidence, I happened to have a discussion with the chairman of the communication department just a few weeks earlier in which I asked him after which communication courses would I be prepared to take the test for my FCC license. And his response was, no, we don't teach that here so I kind of thought I was going to be on my own and then when I walked in and saw all the students had their FCC licenses was when I realized that the station was going to be a resource to me in that and helping me to prepare for and get my FCC license which was really wonderful because that was something I absolutely needed to move on to my professional career. So before we get into talking about your you know, your training and classes at Hofstra Radio, 
obviously you had an interest in radio prior to going to Hofstra. Uh, what was it about radio or what was it about the technology that really interested you and got you to go from one building at Memorial Hall across campus to the other building, to the little theater? Um, that's not something that everybody would do. So what was your interest? What was your driving feeling about radio at that time? Well, I was always a techie geek going back to my early days. In junior high school and high school, I was the resident audiovisual geek. In junior high school, I was the person doing the projection up in the projection booth when movies were shown. I was the person operating the PA system equipment in the mornings when the administration would make their morning announcements. In high school, I was on audiovisual and stage crew as well. We had a great theater facility there where I learned about doing stage lighting, stage sound, and that technical area always interested me. And in terms of that technical area, I thought that something fascinating to work in would be the technical side of broadcasting, either radio or television. When I came to Hofstra, I was interested in both. I knew I wanted to go in to broadcast engineering, wasn't quite sure if I wanted to do radio or television, figuring that it was such a competitive field to get into, I would probably do either or possibly both, which is what I actually ended up doing in my career was both radio and television. So joining the station just seemed to be a natural outgrowth of that, as well as a great way to get some training and experience in preparation for launching my career. Hmm. So uh, what sort of training did you have to do to become a studio engineer? It sounds like you probably would have been very comfortable working with a lot of the equipment at the time just because of your background and your experience. But so what did, uh, what did you learn? Do you remember, did you take a particular non-credit engineering course to become a studio engineer? Do you remember maybe who taught that or who showed you the ropes there? Uh, yes. Uh, when I said I wanted to join the station, they enrolled me in a non-credit engineering course Back then, and I know things have changed at the station since then, I know now everyone who's at the station has to take a general course that covers pretty much everything at the station. But back then, the courses were more segmented. If you wanted to become an engineer, you took engineering training. If you wanted to become an announcer, you took announcer training and so on. The training that I took was taught by Scott Cinnamon, who was the station manager at that point. I had sort of a jump on some of the information that was taught in the course, things like how to use a mixer, how to use microphones, having done all that work previously, I was familiar with all that. If you said to me, uh, get an XLR cable or an XLR connector, I wouldn't look at you like you had three heads, mm -hmm. which a lot of the people coming in for the training didn't have that type of background, but there was also a lot of material that I learned in the training. I had never worked with broadcast carts before. I had only done very little limited work with reel-to-reel -reel before, never worked with transmitter or transmitter remote controls before. So it was a very interesting experience, very good preparation, and Scott Cinnamon was really a very good resource for learning all of this from. Do you remember anything in particular that he taught you, something that you, you always carried with you, or was it more of a general, this, this is how to keep the station on the air? 
more of a general how to operate the equipment, how to keep the station on the air, some of the legal requirements for keeping the station on the air, such as legal IDs, such as EAS monitoring and EAS tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so then once you completed that course, you were able to get your FCC license. Uh, Yes, a combination of that course and a book that the station would sell for a few dollars to all of the engineer training people, all of the training candidates to study from. And then once you were ready, you made the pilgrimage into Manhattan to take the test at the FCC. And you came back to the station with the coveted license in hand and it went up on the wall. And then, wow, I'm an engineer. Wow. So you had to go into Manhattan to take a test there. Can you can you talk about that a little bit or, or where that was or if you remember what was on the test? Believe it or not, 40 years later, I still remember the address. It was 201 Varick Street, oh, sure. which, was, which was the New York City FCC field office. And the test that they gave in those days, it was the actual license you needed to be the person who could hold the, who could operate the station on the air. It was called an FCC third class radio telephone operators permit. There were also more advanced licenses, second class and first class, which were you needed the higher licenses if you were going to be, say, the chief engineer of the station. But just to be the person operating the station, you needed to have the for the third class radio telephone operators permit. And that covered what the FCC called Elements 1 and 2, which was basic broadcast law and basic broadcast operating principles. The test also had, previous to my taking it, something called Element 9, which was more on basic broadcast electronics. That had been eliminated by the time I was taking that test, but they actually gave a written test at the station that was given by the station executive engineer, who back when I was in training was Karen Hamble, and you had to pass that written test as well before the station would allow you to be an engineer. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's quite a lot of work to do, uh, especially, I think, compared to, to how things have changed over the years. Um, just do, uh, do you know, maybe off the top of your head, how many people were working at the station uh, at that time? Because I imagine that's with all that work to get just your broadcast license, it may have uh, limited the field of people who were willing to, to go through all that, that trouble. The station staff wasn't as big back then as it is now. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to guess that there were probably somewhere around 40 or so student engineers at any time, maybe 30 to 40. And then there were the, there was the announcing staff as well. A lot of people were on both the announcing staff and the engineering staff. Now I know the station has a staff of over 200. Back then, it was pretty much if you had an interest and showed up at the station, there was a place for you. Now, the the demand for people joining the station has become so great that I understand you actually have to audition and go through a process to determine whether you're going to be one of the people that's chosen to go into the training class because they just don't have enough space to take everyone who's interested at this point. Hmm. 
So, so you get your FCC license, you do your training at the radio station, and so you become a studio engineer. Do you have any recollection of your first time behind the board? And if you remember, and I'm sure this is where you'll, your memory will be clear, what the board was like, what the equipment was like, if you, could, if you could give an image, because as you said, it's much different than it is today. And I'd love for people to have an understanding of what it was like to be a studio engineer when you first started. Sure. I should say that back then we were mono. The station mm-hmm. operated on 88.7 as a mono broadcaster for their first 25 years. And for the celebration of the 25th anniversary of the station in 1984, the station went to stereo. So when I was at the station, all of the equipment was in mono. We had a Gates Diplomat console which looks, compared to consoles these days, looks like something you would find in the Smithsonian. Mm. If I stretched out my arm side to side as far as I possibly could, I could just barely reach the two ends of the console. It was massive. It had these huge knobs, unlike most of the consoles today, have slider faders. Each, Each fader on the board was a huge knob. And for any of the younger alumni that are listening now that grew up in the era of digital audio, you're used to programs being played back from hard drive. But there was no such thing back in the 80s. All of the programs were recorded on audio tape reels. These spots were recorded on something called a broadcast cart, which is basically a loop of tape that had the ability to cue itself up automatically. The other program source that we played a lot was vinyl LP records, which although I think they're starting to come back possibly into vogue a bit now, have become largely a thing of the past. The plant was totally analog. There was no such thing as digital audio Hmm. back then. As far as my first day behind the board, it is burned into my memory 40 years later, and I will never forget this because it quickly went from being a very enjoyable experience to one hour into the shift becoming a total nightmare Mm -hmm. where I was convinced that I was going to go down in history as the person who single-handedly destroyed the radio station. (laughs) I I signed on the station. As I said back then, we went on at 2 p.m. I signed the station on the air and started playback of the first show, which was a one-hour tape program leading into the 3 p.m. classical music program. The first hour of the shift went perfectly. Every hour into the shift, you had to do something called meter readings. We had a panel with these three huge meters that read the various parameters of the transmitter, the plate voltage, the plate current, and the output power. And there was this huge relay control, which you would use to switch which meter was active. So it was time to take meter readings one hour into my shift. And I switched the meter just as I had seen people do in my training, just as I had done during the training process, expecting everything to be fine. And suddenly I heard at the exact second I switched the meter, I suddenly heard this rush of white noise coming over the off-air monitor. 
now. Anyone who goes into broadcast engineering is going to learn very quickly there's a few sounds that immediately snap you to attention. One of them is white noise, because when you hear white noise, that basically means your station is no longer on the air. Mm. And I looked over the transmitter controls, and everything seemed to be totally dead in the water. Well, I started, I turned the transmitter on an hour before with no problem. Let me just turn it on again. No, not not going to happen. I'm now one hour into my sh- first shift and saying to myself, how did I just kill the transmitter? This oh, makes absolutely oh. no sense at all. So I called over to the office on the intercom, told them, I'm doing my first solo shift today. The transmitter just dropped off air. I can't get it back on. I don't know what the problem is. And they said, no problem. We'll send over one of the more advanced students to have a look. Someone came down. I showed them exactly what I did. They said, no, there's no way that should have caused any problem. But they tried to reset everything, and the transmitter was just 100% totally dead in the water. And obviously, in my mind, I had done something because it was at the exact second that I switched that meter that the station died. So now I'm quickly thinking to myself, okay, what should my choice of career be now? Because I don't think broadcast engineering is going to cut it after I go down in history as the person who single-handedly destroyed WVHC by burning out the transmitter. Well, they hunted down Jeff Krause, who was the general manager of the station at the time, got him to go over to the dorm building. Back then it was called Tower C. I think these days it's called Constitution Hall. But Mm -hmm. the transmitter was up at the roof of that building. So Jeff went over to have a look and see what happened. And he found something very interesting. I should mention this was January when this happened. So this was on the break between the fall and the spring semester. And there were very few students living on campus at the time. So during that break period, whoever was living on campus, Hofstra would move them into the first two towers, towers A and B. And there would be no one living in tower C. So one of the planned maintenance people at Hofstra happened to have a brilliant idea. He realized, wow, there's nobody living in Tower C, D, E, and F. I can save Hofstra some money on their electric bill by shutting down the electricity to those four buildings. I guess the big antenna on the roof of Tower C wasn't quite enough of a symbol that, gee, there might be something in this building that would like to have electricity. But I swear to you, Brian, if we had rehearsed for a week, we could not have gotten the timing down more perfectly for this person to cut the power to Tower C at the exact second that I switched that meter. So Jeff made some calls, got the plant department to turn the electricity back on. He got the transmitter started. I got my heart started again. And (laughs) thankfully, the station survived that little comedy of errors. Oh, Mike, my my heart breaks for you hearing this story. It's uh, and and I I'm sure we all have our stress related dreams of, of the radio station, things going wrong. That now that scenario will probably be in my nightmares if it ever gets that bad to, that I, 
that what you went through and it, it obviously wasn't your fault, but you persevered and, and you kept going and you stayed in the business. Obviously that's, that's a great story. And it was a valuable lesson because it taught me that in this business, you have to always be prepared for the unexpected and be prepared for whatever that day at the station throws at you. Right. Right. So, so you mentioned Jeff Krause and Scott and Karen, were there other people who were, were really helpful or welcoming to you in those days that, that uh, gave you good advice or made you feel welcome at the station? Uh, yes, as I said, Scott did a great job on the training and getting me involved enough to speed on the station. Another person I would mention, Rick Walchewski, he was the host of the first program that I did engineering for. It was a classical music show called Evensong. Rick later went on to be the production manager of the station, and I had the pleasure of taking one of his production and tape editing training sessions, which was very helpful and which I learned a lot. And as I mentioned earlier, back then, radio programs were not on computer. They were on reels of tape. And so to edit it, any edits you wanted to do in the program, you actually had to physically cut the tape with a razor blade and then splice the pieces together. And you were cutting out the sections of the tape that you didn't want. And it was unlike the digital editing, which is a non-destructive process. If you make a mistake and you're not happy with the results in the digital editing, you just hit undo and you're back to normal. Start over, do it again. But the razor blades didn't have an undo button. You were actually destroying pieces of the tape as you cut them out. And if you you would... as you went through the process, you would hold on to pieces of tape in case you had to put them back in, and you would have this whole pile of sections of tape sitting around just waiting to go into the garbage can, but that you couldn't throw out until you were sure that you were happy with the process. And if you were trying to do precise edits where you were trying to get the exact beginning of the word or the exact start of a note of music, you would sometimes be shaving off these tiny, tiny little pieces of tape over and over trying to fine tune it that were so small you couldn't save them. They would get destroyed as you were cutting them. And I learned a lot from Rick about tape editing which came in very, it turned out to be very critical for me professionally. So I was grateful to him for that. There was another gentleman, Carl Bucking, who was basically Mr. Classical Music at the station. He was the station's classical music expert. He had actually graduated shortly after I joined the station, but he stayed on as a volunteer doing whatever he could to help out at the station. And I remember in my senior year, when I was the executive engineer, Carl really turned out to be a lifesaver. The station had gotten an edict from above that they were to start up a classical music program Mm -hmm. in the morning. And instead of signing on at two in the afternoon, Monday through Friday, we would now be signing on nine in the morning. And we only had a few weeks to put all of this together. As you would imagine, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. is kind of a busy time for students. They tend to have classes during that block. 
So it's kind of hard to basically staff that on just a few weeks' notice and find people that, that have free time that aren't locked into class during those times. And when we were scrambling to put this together, unfortunately, it being a need from above, we didn't have the option to say, no, we need more time to get this going. And Carl, since he had graduated and didn't have classes to worry about, was really a godsend in volunteering to engineer this classical music program five hours a day, five days a week for whatever duration of time we needed until we were able to staff up and have enough people in there that we could cover it. He basically took on for zero pay what would be almost a full-time job in the broadcast industry for a period of time, and that was immensely helpful to us. Jeff Foss is another person I would mention. Jeff was the music director, and Jeff was an older gentleman. He was about 10 years older than the typical college student. He had gone out into the real world. He was working in broadcasting, and then he decided to come back to school at Hofstra. I believe he was going for his graduate degree. And Jeff was working out in the real world. He was an engineer at WHLI, WKJY. Hmm. And it was pretty well known at the station for my involvement in engineering that that was my goal. And I wanted to get into broadcast engineering. And in my junior year, Jeff very wonderfully and graciously told me that he was planning on leaving his job at HLIKJY to return to school more full time. And he very generously offered to recommend me to take over his job. Wow. And I actually thought that if I applied, I might have a decent shot at it because a lot of the engineers from HLI and KJY had come from Hofstra Radio and Hofstra had a very good relationship with them. I ultimately, I'm not, I'm still not sure whether it was a foolish decision or a wise decision, but I ultimately got talked out of applying for the job because it would be a bad idea to drop out of college without mm. finishing. But I think it was just immensely generous of Jeff to be willing to help me out at that level where he would put his reputation on the line to recommend me for his position. And probably the last person I would mention was a gentleman by the name of Elliot Lifson. Elliot was not a student at Hofstra. He was a professional broadcast engineer. He worked at WHLI, WKJY when I was a student there. He later went on to become the production director at WQXR, one of New York's biggest classical music stations. Mm -hmm. And Elliot did a couple of rock music shows at the station, but he would also come back to the station to help out lend his technical expertise from time to time. And I remember in my junior year, we were doing an Irish music festival live on air from Mineola. And Jeff Krause wanted to also make a multi-track recording of the broadcast live on the venue for later Mixdown. And we had neither the equipment nor the technical expertise at the station to pull off something like that. So Jeff asked Elliot if he would come back to work on it. 
And I remember sitting in a meeting with Jeff and with Elliot, these two consummate broadcast professionals talking about all the technical details, half of which was flying over my head and I was constantly interrupting and asking questions. Well, what does that mean? What's this piece of equipment you mentioned? I'm not familiar with that. And the way that the way Elliot treated me with such respect, not making me feel like this dumb kid that was bothering him with a million questions of things that I should know, but treating me with respect and treating me like a professional, he went on Elliot to basically become sort of a role model for me. Wow, this is what life after Hofstra can be like, and I would love to do what he's doing. I even remember the night before this live Irish broadcast, we were at the station doing testing of the phone circuit that was going to carry the broadcast live, and the phone company did a number on us and gave us this god-awful, horrible circuit, and me and Jeff are listening to this, and Elliot and saying, how are we going to use this for a broadcast? This is going to sound terrible. And Elliot said, hang on, I'll be back in a little while. Elliot ran over to HLI, came back with this home-brewed electronic box. I don't know if it's something he had built or if it was something one of the other people, one of the other engineers at HLI built, and it was some sort of filter set, and who knows what else was in it, but he hooked it up to the phone line, and while it wasn't perfect, we suddenly had a phone line that was reasonably usable to do a decent quality music broadcast. So those were some of the people that I had really positive experiences with at the station. Those are those are great stories and, and wonderful connections. Um, I have to uh, guess, based on these stories and surviving your first day in the studio, that um, is it presumptuous to say that you felt comfortable working at the station pretty early on, or did it take a little while to feel confident in what you were doing? On my first day, I felt very comfortable when I started. I felt absolutely confident and comfortable that everything was going great for my first hour, and then we went into that little adventure. But once I survived that little adventure, I was pretty comfortable with what I was doing. I learned more as time went on when I started to get involved with remote broadcasts. We would do football games from the stadium. We would do basketball games from the physical fitness center. And I had to learn more about that end. But in terms of the technical aspect, I was always a pretty quick study. I probably would not have felt as comfortable if I were doing on-air work just because going on-air really wasn't my thing and I had no experience with it. But as long as I stayed within the technical and engineering side, I was pretty comfortable with what I was doing. And and to me, there's a great lesson in there for, for anyone in any field is that it seemed like you had uh, the wisdom and the confidence to ask questions and uh and it's it seemed to serve you well as i've told people during my broadcast career when i was supervising others and when i was training others this is a constantly evolving field the moment that your career is going to crash and burn is when you reach the point where you say 
I've learned everything, I know everything, and there's nothing more to learn. <laughs> Going to work and broadcasting every day, wanting to learn more there is always going to be more to learn and even in job interviews when i was running the operations and engineering department of the station and i would interview candidates i would tell them i want you to understand something there is no such thing as a stupid question the only thing that's stupid is knowing you don't know something and trying to hide that fact instead of learning more about it. Hmm. So with the benefit of hindsight, and these, these stories are wonderful and really paint a, a, a great picture of, of uh, Hofstra Radio in the, in the days of WVHC, is it possible to go back into your shoes as someone leaving high school and, and entering college and, and starting there and before before the first day disaster, as you're getting settled, as you're exploring the station, what did you think then that Hofstra Radio would mean to you? Well, I figured that it would be an opportunity to get experience, to get training, to learn about how to do radio and not just to learn about it in a classroom setting in terms of sitting and talking about it and discussing how you do things. And I'm not trying to put down the theory part of learning. That's all very important. But the opportunity to actually get your hands on and to be able to do it, to bridge that step from I've read the books, I've talked to people in the field about it, I know in my head what it's like to do it versus to actually put your hands on the equipment and actually do it is so important. And the experience and training that I got at Hofstra Radio was absolutely critical to me getting into the field. I never would have gotten my first job in the field without that experience. If I had to pick one single decision I made at Hofstra that was absolutely the best and smartest decision I ever made during my time there, it was unquestionably joining the radio station. Mike, it has been a real pleasure and an honor to hear your stories. And I uh, thank you so much for sharing your memories and your experiences. And um, I'm sure I have more questions and uh, I'm sure you have more stories. And I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely, Brian. It's been a pleasure talking with you about Hofstra Radio.